don't want today to get very far without wishing a happy Father's Day. Uh, my father is, is not walking this earth with us anymore. He left in 2004, uh, though we miss him immensely and trust him to God's care and look forward to eternity uh, with him. Those of you who are fathers, uh, I wish you the very, very best today. Uh, as I tell my daughters and our son, this is the most important day of the year. And, and it's just a delight to have Father's Day weekend, or should we say month, with everyone here. So happy Father's Day. What we've been doing as we teach through this class is discussing some of the things that Jesus may have told his followers when he encountered them on the road to Emmaus on Easter afternoon. Jesus is walking and he comes upon two of his disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed other. And, and Jesus is incognito. And they don't understand who Jesus is. And Jesus begins to reveal to them the Old Testament narrative that explains who Jesus is. And it's really uh, an, an interesting story on multiple levels. Because you've got these folks who knew Jesus, had heard that his, his death his, was somehow a resurrection, but hadn't seen anything of it. And they don't recognize Jesus as he walks to them on the road. So Jesus is not only unrecognized by them on the road, but they don't recognize the Old Testament teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. So you've got this double layer of blindness. And Jesus begins to reveal through the Old Testament the previews that had been given of who he would be and what he would do. And as Jesus began to do this, the people's, those two people, they say that their heart burned within them. And I think as we understand the great story that's conveyed throughout Scripture, it should make our hearts burn within us. So that's part of the goal today as we look today at the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, we'll get to in more detail, but I want to break the lesson apart into three areas. First, I want to talk about the context of the tabernacle, and then I want to discuss the concept behind the tabernacle, and third, we'll look at the reality that's conveyed in the image of the tabernacle. Now, we won't get to all of the tabernacle this week. It is our intention to continue this next week, but let's begin with the context, and the context is extremely important. So this context begins with the first book of Moses, but it's the entire Bible that's there. The 66 books of the Bible tell one coherent cosmic story. And we've got to understand that cosmic story. I mean, it's, it's inspirational to me that you can have 66 books written over a thousand years apart by so many different authors. And yet they tell one continuous, consistent, cosmic story. 
Now, this story's foundation is laid in the first five books of the Bible. The foundation for the story is laid in these books that are called the books of Moses. They're Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Generally regarded as books that that are not only products to some degree of Moses, not totally, but to some degree, a great degree of Moses. But they're also books of the revelation God gave to Moses. And so within the framework of this, we begin. The foundation of that story is critical to understanding the context of the tabernacle. We need to go through it quickly, and we will do this very fast, but this is the foundation of the cosmic story of Scripture. The books of Moses begin with an understanding that humanity is hardwired to be with God. I'm looking at my nephew Davis right over here. Davis was hardwired by God to be in a relationship with God. I can say that about each one of you as I go around this limited room, but I can say it about each one of you on the internet. I don't care who you are, if you're a human being, you have been hardwired to be in a relationship with God. That's the story, a part of the story of the creation of humanity. Adam and Eve, in the image of God, God created them, male and female. We are made to be in God's image. We are made to be in a relationship with God. God walked in the garden. He spoke with them. They related to God. But there was a a time where sin entered the picture. And sin is a disobedience. I like to think of sin as an impurity. God is pure. God is 100% pure. Sin is impurity. Sin is that which God is not. If law and holiness is a reflection of God's character and God's being, sin is a reflection of that which God is not. By definition. You, and, and, and so the question becomes, what happens to humanity when we're made to be with God? We're made to be in his test tube. We're made to be pure. And yet we become impure through sin. And there's no way that impurity is going to be part of God. So there's no way the life of God can thrive in impurity. And God says impurity is something that will produce death. Now we've got a cosmic problem here. Because we're made to be in a relationship with God and we're made to be pure like God. And yet we've chosen impurity that leads to death. And that leaves every human being with an empty void in their life. Because that sin, that impurity has separated us from God. And we know that. 
We know something is missing in our lives. We know that we're missing. And people look for it. They say, there's got to be meaning to life. Where's the meaning? There's, there's got to be some significance. There's something inside me that says, life's supposed to be significant. I'm supposed to be significant. I want to be significant. I want purpose in life. I want, that's my daughter Rachel calling for, she should be watching me. One of my daughters text her and say, quit texting me while I'm teaching for Father's Day and watch instead on the internet. She's in California, so her time zones are crossed. What is, but, but people cry out because it's built within us. I mean, if you're made to be something and you're not that, and it's hardwired into your brain, you're supposed to be, then you're asking yourself, you, you've got this inside you saying, there's got to be purpose. Isn't there some purpose in this life? I want to be in a relationship that counts. I want to be in a good relationship. Destructive relationships are bad. Ugh. But a good relationship. And people are saying, I'm made for this. People are made with this innate. There's got to be something more in life. So this is the story that is set up in these foundational books of Moses. And the books go further and explain what we know also by reading history. That people have created their own answers to this emptiness. People try to fill it up. They try to fill it up with physical things. Trying to find a human relationship that will be as meaningful as the eternal one. Trying to find pleasures of the flesh that might satisfy the serotonin levels in the brain and make you feel good temporarily. They try to find the answers to significance and meaning in life and explanations for why things might go awry. And out of this comes a creation of, by many people, of God's. That which is meant to be in the relationship with us. The problem is, any God we create as a human is going to be limited. And that's true on a personal level, but it's also true culturally. So many of the gods that were created out of the minds that drive for a God. Remember, we're hardwired to be in a relationship with him. So you take people who don't have a revelation of God, they're still going to believe in a God of sorts, most of them. Even if it's the God of their own mind. And the ancient people, they embraced territorial gods. I've put two of them up here. These are Israel's neighbors. This is Shamash. Shamash was a Mesopotamian god of the sun. That was his territory. He was also the god of justice because the sun shines out. You can see things in the sunlight. You can see justice. But this is him. 
He's the God of just of the sun. And, and the sun rises and the sun sets. And that's his territory. That's where he reigns. This is Marduk. Marduk, more so in the, the, the thousand years before Christ, kind of took over in the pantheon. But he was the God of the storms. You can see his lightning bolts up there. The God of thunder. The Mesopotamian equivalent to Thor in the Norse mythology. But, but these were territorial gods. They had their areas. They had their venues. They had what they controlled. Think Poseidon and the water, a territorial god. Now, out of people worshiping the idols of their imagination, the, the brain's creative attempt to reconstruct what is missing in our life. God calls Abraham, and he, by the way, did not use a cell phone to our knowledge. So don't take this picture too far. It's not authentic. But God called Abraham out of idolatry and said, come follow me. And God gives Abraham some degree of revelation. Abraham begins to uncover and, and, and learn from God in greater detail who God really is. So it's no longer just in your imaginations try to reconstruct God, which man futilely and woman futilely tried to do. But it's let God reveal himself. And so God begins to reveal himself with a greater degree of revelation to Abraham. And God makes a promise for Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise and said, Out of your family tree is going to come my answer to this cosmic problem. And it won't just be for your family tree. It's going to be for all the nations in the world. And God makes that promise. But Abraham's own family is still embracing idolatry. Abraham has children, Isaac. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. So the grandson of Abraham is Jacob. Jacob goes off to get his wife. He winds up getting a couple of them. It's like he went to Sam's Club for his wife and he got... You know, bought wives in bulk. He got Leah, he got Rachel, and then he got a couple of handmaidens. And it, it, uh, it was uh, an original Sam's Wholesale Club. But Rachel, the love of his life, leaves with Jacob. And do you know what she steals from her dear old daddy? Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Rachel. Daughter-in-law, granddaughter-in-law of Abraham, stealing the household gods. See, the ancient Canaanites, uh, here are two that I've pulled out of the library display cabinets. I've got pictures of them up here. These are actual Canaanite idols that have been uncovered in archaeological digs, consistent with the time period. 
And they kept these and they'd keep them as their household gods so they'd have them and they could worship with them whenever they wanted to. You need some, some, something? Man, get the God out. Hey, I need something real bad right now. It's not raining. Can you make it rain, please? My child is sick. Can you get my child well? I'm, we, you know, we've got famine. Take some of the bread we've got and put it in front of the idol. And she stole her household idols. That's what you're saying. Well, Rachel, remember who her boys are. Dan and Naphtali. Well, okay, who, who knows that much about them? Not most people. But Joseph? Joseph's mama is stealing her daddy's idols? Benjamin? His mama? Do you really think she reared them with a good, thorough understanding of white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism? This is their mama. And when Laban found out that the the idols had been stolen, he challenges them. She's sitting on them on the camel. She doesn't give them back. She lies about it and keeps them. That's the home Joseph grows up in. Now, Joseph gets a degree of revelation from God as well. God gives him dreams. He interprets the dreams. God helps him grow up. But Joseph and then the family come into Egypt. And they sit in Egypt and grow in Egypt for some 430 years. And after that, 430 years is drawing to an eye, to a close. Moses comes along. And Moses is reared in Pharaoh's house. Stephen said in Acts that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses grows up knowing about the Egyptian thoughts. You say, well, that's just the wisdom. That's like the uh, Egyptian science and stuff. No, all of that was interrelated with their religion. There was a god of the Nile, rise the god of the sun. You've got all of these different gods who have their different territories. They were no different than the Mesopotamians in that they created their concepts of God trying to fill that hard wire that we've all got. So Moses would have been brought up in the house of Seti I. That, by the way, is uh, his mummy. That was the surrogate father for Moses. And you can go find Seti I's temple that was built for him and for his mummy. And it's got all of this stuff that Moses was taught, painted on the walls. Here is Seti in the middle. He's offering incense to Osiris on the right. Osiris was the lord of the dead. And this is Hathor behind Hathor was the goddess of love, femininity, often depicted by a picture of a cow. Back then, if you called a woman a cow, you were commenting on how nicely feminine she was. I do not recommend that today. But this is what Moses was taught. You've got all these territorial gods who have all of these areas that they rule over. 
And that's why when Moses is on Mount Sinai and God appears to him in a bush that's on fire but not being consumed and God says, I want you to go down there. Moses' comment when he says, what name, what, what's your name? Moses isn't asking the, just the label for God. He means, what's your territory? Which God are you? What, what, what are you over? Are you God of the burning bushes? Are you God of the mountains? Are you God of the goat herders? What's your name? What's your claim to fame? What is your territory? And God answers and says, everything. I am. You can fill in the blank after that. I am who I am. Anything in the present tense is my territory. That phrase can also mean I will be what I will be. Anything in the future is my territory. God says, "Don't I can't say to you, oh yeah, I'm God of the burning bushes. God says, I'm, I am. I am the God. The God. The one God. And I want you to go down to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh that the real true God wants you to go. And release the Israelites. So Moses goes down there thinking, you know, this is crazy. I, I can't talk. I don't know how to do this. He's, he's got me over a barrel here. He's told me to do it. I mean, it's a burning bush. It's a pretty big encounter, pretty big deal. I'm a wanted man there, but okay. And Moses was reared with all of this Egyptian stuff. I'm convinced that part of what God did in sending Moses back and not getting Pharaoh to release the people just at once was letting God demonstrate something to Moses because every time God did something in the ten plagues, he wasn't just doing something. He was conquering one of the gods of Egypt. And so God goes down there and he gets the best of every god Egypt's got, including Pharaoh, who was considered God. And so now the people are released. God takes the people into the wilderness. And God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai and puts him in seminary. Because poor Moses had been raised, reared with all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And God had to do some major theology work in Moses' brain. And God did that by revealing himself to Moses like he had never done before. And that is the revelation of Moses, to Moses. And, 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 and we read about it. Moses is up there for weeks and weeks and weeks because God's revealing himself to Moses more fully than ever before. I mean, you think, well, yeah, he got the Ten Commandments. That didn't take that long. That's not a seven-week exercise. I mean, God could have written them out ahead of time, read them to them. Take five minutes to explain each one. You're at 50 minutes. It's less than an hour. But God's got a lot he's got to reveal. 
So the books of Moses give us the, 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 this foundation, but understand, they don't give us the completed story. They just give us this foundation. And so Moses is beginning to, I mean, his brain's exploding over this. And as part of the foundation and the theology fix that God gave Moses, God said, build a tabernacle. Now that's the context. I've got here, see how Brent does with this one. Oh, that's good, Brent. Whoops. Okay, the Holy of Holies has just blown the cover off. Excuse me. I, I've got here a model of the tabernacle that I put together this week. I didn't sew the, the uh, so I didn't lace on the tent covering because I want you to be able to see that there's a holy of holies in here and another uh, courtyard. There's an altar. There's a table. You got your sacrificial sheep. You've got all of this stuff that goes around it. All of these pieces. We're going to look at in much greater detail next week. But in the meanwhile, God said, I want you to build this. And I've got very specific ways I want it built. Build it exactly as I show you to build it. It's very interesting. When I built this, I pulled out the directions. I got this from the Jerusalem shop in Jerusalem. They sent it overseas. And the directions are in Hebrew, but they've also got an English translation, thankfully. And in the very beginning, they quote the same Exodus 25 passage, verse 8, that I've been quoting to you for weeks now. Build it exactly like I told you to, God says. And there are reasons why. We talked the last two weeks, and you can get them on the internet, about the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark of the Covenant was not simply something to go in the tabernacle. This Ark of the Covenant is an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. If you read Revelation 11 verse 19, you'll see there's the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven at judgment time. Because God can judge people under the law or under the mercy of Jesus. And that's what judgment is. But that was last week. So I'm not going back to that lesson. But let me tell you that the context of this entire facility being instructed to Moses was one that was trying to not only fix his theology, but engender good theology going forward so the people of Israel would have an idea of what was to come. It's a cosmic story. This is just the foundation. So that's the context. Let me talk about the concept. Think of the issue this way. How do these two mix and mingle without God being polluted? How does impurity mix with divine purity without divine purity becoming impure? There's another biblical analogy of light and darkness. How can light exist at the same place, in the same time, in the same moment of space as darkness. Can't. 
Darkness, by definition, is the absence of light. If there is light, there is no darkness. So, how do these two mix and mingle without God being polluted? How do we mix and mingle and fellowship and relate to a holy God when we are in ho- unholy? For starters, we need to know the difference. We need to understand that we are not godly, that we are impure, that we are unholy. If we were to use, uh, sorry, I need a piece of paper. Don't leave, don't hang up. This is still going on. You just don't see me because I'm not there. But I am so coming there. Okay, hold on. Don't hang up. Don't turn off. I'm back. We need a picture here. All right. If this is God, you say, well, you just put God in a box. No, God is a real entity with, in some sense, boundaries, at least moral boundaries. I said last week that the law is an expression of God's morality. We see in the law how God would live as a human. The law, is that dark enough for you to see that ink? The law is an expression of God's morality. Let me go another step, though, and tell you if there is such a thing as God, by definition, we also have something that is un-God. We usually have it as an adverb, ungodly. So if the law is God's morality, then what is ungodly includes sin or transgressing the law. Now, how does this be part of this? It can't. You and I, standing right here, have zippo chance of being right here. Because God's unchanging. God's not going to change and become ungodly. He's not going to change his morality. The expression of that morality. So what we've got to do, if we go back to the PowerPoint, is know the difference between who we are and who God is. And we find God revealed himself in the law. The law is a revelation of God. Look at Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, we have the following. Moses is recounting for the second time the Ten Commandments to Israel. And he says, hear these statutes, hear these rules, learn them, be careful to do them. Lord made a covenant with us in Horeb. And the Lord said, I'm the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself a carved image, don't bow down to them, don't serve them. Then he says, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain, observe the Sabbath day. And it goes through all of the Ten Commandments, okay? And then look at this passage. The people said... 
Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. The revelation of God in those commandments is a revelation of the glory of God. This is a huge word, kavod in Hebrew, glory. The law itself shows the glory of God. God reveals himself in the law. So once we begin to understand the law, we begin to understand how different we are than God because we don't follow this law well at all. We are ungodly people. And so the question becomes, where do we as unholy people meet God? I mean, that's the question. Where do we get to encounter God, to fellowship with God, to meet with God? Let me tell you, we don't make that decision. This is not pocket God time. We don't keep God in our pocket. We don't pull him out when we need him. We don't make those decisions. The people thought they did, but God told Moses, Theology Lesson 101, you meet me, God, where I, God, choose, not keep me in your pocket till you want me. Big important theology lesson. You will meet me at the place of my choosing. You build this whole tabernacle because it's where I will meet you. God picks the place. And it's built to exacting details because God's not one of these gods of, hey, any approach, anything you want to do, I'm loosey-goosey. You pick your road, I'll pick mine. No. God says, look, Sin is a serious problem. Impurity is a serious problem. You're going to have to meet me at the place I have instructed you to build because it's the earthly picture of an eternal reality. And oh, by the way, it's portable. Pack it up and take it everywhere you go. And when you move camp from here to there, you take it apart and it's the first thing you put together and you build all your tents around it. Because it's the center of camp. It's the center of your life. And it goes everywhere. I am not a territorial God. The ancient people embraced territorial gods. God is not a territorial God. He goes everywhere. He's the God who is. And so he reveals himself in the law. But he says specifically, my glory is going to be manifest itself at the tabernacle. This is where the glory of God will be. Exodus 40, 34 and 35. Look for a moment. Oops. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses wasn't even able to enter it because the cloud settled and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord. Huge, huge concept. The glory of the Lord shines 
and rests in the tabernacle. God's going to meet us. His glory is there. And God says, I will meet you there. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. God says, I will meet you there. He's really clear. He says in Exodus 29, 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it will be sanctified by my, again, glory. This is what we see. Now remember, this is not the completed story. This is merely the foundation. These are the books of Moses. This is what Moses is being told. Now, over time, the tabernacle becomes the temple. Solomon builds a temple. But the people of Israel don't live in their covenant, and they violate it, and they still worship idols, and they make their own idols, and they make their own concepts up. And there comes a time when the glory of the Lord, which was in the tabernacle and which was at the temple, there comes a time when the glory of the Lord departs the temple. Remember, I kept saying the glory, the glory, the glory. And the glory of the Lord departs the temple. Ezekiel tells the story about it. Ezekiel and Ezekiel 10 and 11. We see Ezekiel writing and he says... uh, um, I looked, and behold, over the expanse, over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire. And, and, and the cherubim are now standing on the south side of the house of the Lord, the temple, when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court of the temple. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord, but it continues, and as it continues, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, standing over the cherubim. The cherubim lift their wings, they mount up from the earth, and they leave. They stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And then from there it continues. The cherubim lifted their wings, the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of Jerusalem and went east to the Mount of Olives, to the east side, but into the wilderness. I mean, think about this for a moment. The glory of the Lord that has been the center of the people, that called the people to covenant, that was the relationship with the people, gets up and leaves and goes out through the wilderness. This is this cosmic story. But God doesn't just leave. If we go back to the PowerPoint, God doesn't just leave. God promises to return his presence again. In Isaiah 40, in Ezekiel 43, in Jeremiah 3.16. Look at just one of those. Look for, maybe we've got time for two. Look at Jeremiah, or look at Isaiah first. Remember, God's glory departs Jerusalem, goes into the wilderness to the east. But Jeremiah says a day is coming that a voice will cry out in the wilderness the direction God left. Prepare the way of the Lord. 
make straight in the desert a highway for our God because he's going to come back. The glory of the Lord will return to his people. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Vanigla kavod Adonai. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Vara'ukal basar. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Kipi Adonai Diber. The Hebrew is just beautiful. And that, that's, God says, I'm coming back. He says, later on in the chapter, get you up to a high mountain. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, because he's coming with might. His arm with him, his reward with him, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will lead, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is the Lord. He says, yes, I'm leaving. Your impurity has driven me away, but I will return. My glory will come back, as he said in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the one who said he's leaving. Then he led me to the gate facing the east from the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming back from the east. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God would return. But God, the the, the tabernacle, the temple was always God meeting the people. That's the concept. That's the concept. So if you've got this is the concept, we've got a few minutes left for me to just give you a little bit of reality. Remember, God revealed himself in the law. The law is a revelation of the character of God and who God is. God reveals himself in the law, and then God says, my glory will be in the tabernacle. That's where I will meet with you, in the tabernacle. Got it? You, if you're on the internet and you got it, hold your hand up. I'm joking, I can't see it. Um, But this is critical. Because here's what blows my mind. The Gospel of John in the New Testament, written seven, eight hundred years after what we've got in Isaiah, six, seven hundred years after Ezekiel, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that's translated dwelt 
if we look through its Greek usage in the Greek Old Testament, is tabernacled, pitched his tent, built his tabernacle. The word Jesus Christ came as the tabernacle. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God revealed himself in the law, but that was just a preview of the reality of the character of God. If the law is a reflection of how God would live as a human being in that time, in that culture, in that day, then you can have no more fulfillment of the law than God himself as a human being living in a culture in a day. And in Jesus, we have the final word, the full revelation of God. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He is the essence of what law is. He is the character of God. And so this idea of us going and meeting God with our impurity, that can only be done if our impurity has been made clean. Washed by the blood of the pure lamb. And Jesus is that pure lamb. So when Jesus comes, he as the temple is the glory of God. And we are able to see kavod, the glory. Kavod Adonai, the glory of God. All flesh. The ruah kol basar. All flesh will see it. Yachdad, together. Everyone beholds the glory of God when they see the only Son from the Father. This whole model is a model of what Jesus does for us so that we can fix this cosmic, no, fix, we can live in a fixed cosmic story. We don't fix it, God does. But that's this beautiful grandeur sweep. And we do ourselves and we do the Lord a disservice if we don't see that what we are today and what we have from him today is the culmination of his hand driving a narrative of thousands upon thousands years to resolve within all of us that yearning, that hardwired recognition there's got to be more to life in a way that brings satisfaction in what Paul says, a peace that passes all understanding. So next week, I really want to get into this in more detail with you. I want to talk about the Holy of Holies. I want to talk about the curtain that divides it. I want to talk about the role of the high priest. I want to talk about the placement of the ark in here. And we're going to discuss the sacrifices that took place and why they took place. I even want to talk to you about why they sewed all of these goatskins together to make one coherent curtain around. But that's next week. 
before we go, let me tell you that if you want to email us, um, the library website, info at lanierfoundation.org is a good one for prayer and for dialogue back and forth. But if you want to be on our email, you want uh, uh, to be part of the class through an online presence, just email us at wantmore at biblicalliteracy.org. There's a dash in there, wantmore at biblical-literacy.org. And you can sign up for the emails. I want to bless you. And then I look forward to seeing you again next week, God willing. Father, thank you for revealing to us who you are. We try to create you in our image. And humanity has been trying to do that since the fall. But you have given us a revelation of you in a way that can draw us back in a just and loving and merciful walk with you. And for that, we're grateful. Please, Lord, may your spirit open our eyes to that reality. And may we cry out to you, Abba, Father. May we cry out to you in relationship through the blood of Jesus. Amen. See you guys next time.